Crosspoint and Peachtree City family, along with those of you who may be joining in with us from elsewhere this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this video stream. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy most weeks who gets the privilege of unpacking the scriptures as we come together. Speaking of the scriptures, last week, if you weren't around, marked the relaunch of our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians, a series that we put on pause for the better part of a couple of months in order to address a number of biblical themes and issues pertinent to this strange historical moment in which we all find ourselves. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you, take time this week, sometime in the coming weeks perhaps, to to read those chapters in 2 Corinthians that we've already covered, perhaps listen to some of the more recent sermons in this series. For, For some, perhaps as a refresher, for others, particularly those who are new to our church, as a way of onboarding with our church, knowing that we're gonna be in this book of the Bible for the better part of the summer. Speaking of Bibles, if you have one, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter seven. We'll be in verses two through 16 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, as I've mentioned week in and week out, please go to our church's website, go on to the leadership page, find someone on our staff, their email address, shoot us an email, let us know that you don't, possess a Bible, and we will make sure to get a copy of a Bible sent to you so that you can have access to it during times like these, as well as all the rest of the week when we are not coming together as the gathered church. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for your living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, cutting through in order to to bring conviction, to bring healing, a scalpel for our good, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, bringing our innermost motives to light. Would Would you do that this morning? Your kindness leading us to repentance, bringing us face to face with the sorrow of sin, and the sweetness of the Savior. In his name, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we dive into this morning's passage, roughly a year's gone by since Paul's penning of 1 Corinthians, a year in which many have come to question Paul's credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ on the basis of his many sufferings, so that Part of the purpose of Paul's writing, as I've mentioned several times throughout this series, is to address the naysayers in defense of his apostolic authority as a minister of the gospel. For the, for the better part of five chapters now, going all the way back midway through chapter two, Paul's been talking about this ministry of the new covenant established in Jesus's blood, the covenant by which God writes his will on our hearts so that we might fulfill it as we walk by the Spirit. A ministry confirmed by the transformed hearts and lives of those in the city of Corinth in direct correlation to their beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's language earlier in this letter, which we're told filled Paul with boldness and with hope in his proclamation of the gospel, the ministry that he had been given. 
This morning's passage picks up where Paul left off all the way back in chapter two, verse 13. We've rest stopped for the better part of five chapters now, and now we're diving back into where Paul was in chapter two, verse 13, prior to those five chapters having to do with the ministry and beauty of the new covenant. If you pick up in verse two of chapter seven, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul's not not trying to to get the rebellious minority in Corinth to like him. That's not not the motivation here. He's not out to secure an apology in an attempt to mend his fragile ego. He's calling those in Corinth to consider the evidence and to respond appropriately. As a father in the faith, he's calling them to widen their hearts. Going back to last week, to be controlled by the love of Christ. To use Paul's language in chapter six, verses 11 through 13, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. A call that the Corinthians apparently responded to well as many in Corinth were brought to repentance, filling Paul with great comfort and joy. He goes on to say, In verse five, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, two of the greatest words in all of scripture, you see them more than once. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Coming... Coming back to the earliest weeks of this series, in the wake of his painful visit to Corinth, during which many openly rebelled against him, calling his apostleship into question, Paul then left for the city of Ephesus, where he wrote a letter calling those in danger of rejecting him and his gospel to repent, a letter that we're told he sent by way of Titus, so that as we pick up here, Paul Paul was anxious He was anxious to hear how the church was doing, how the church was responding. He was anxious to hear how Titus was doing, how the church had received his letter. In his famous chapter 11, lists of sufferings as an apostle, Paul includes his concern for the churches he had planted within that list. He says in chapter 11, verse 28, and apart from other things, all of the sleepless nights and the beatings and the hunger Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul agonized over the well-being of the churches that he had planted, deeply desiring to see those churches flourish for God's glory and the joy of God's people. 
something that, if I can be very candid, very much resonates with me these days. When, when Paul uses that language of fear within in verse five, most scholars believe Paul to be talking about fear associated with whether or not his labor is in vain, his labor in the gospel. So that you see elsewhere in Paul's writings, Galatians chapter four, verse 11, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Or 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Or even in within this very same letter that we're working through right now, 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I am afraid that the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We're talking about fear and doubt associated with the church, with Jesus's bride and how she might react to the schemes of the devil, how she might react to the circumstances of life. There are a lot of pastors out there, many of whom I've talked to over the past several weeks, past couple of months, who are experiencing that kind of fear right now. The fear that they might be laboring in vain. The challenging circumstances of COVID-19 revealing a lack of gospel centrality of becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in the midst of all of this, on a path to destruction. Church leaders wondering, how will the people of our flock respond? Just as Paul had wondered how those in Corinth would respond to his letter of rebuke, a letter that Paul says he regretted in one sense, that he didn't enjoy the sorrow that he brought upon those in Corinth any more than a parent enjoys disciplining his or her child. A letter that Paul didn't regret, he says, in another sense, knowing that it led to their repentance. We're told that Paul receives word through Titus that the Corinthians were grieved by his letter into repenting. And, and here's the incredible thing. Paul declares the presence of Titus and the report that he brings, he declares those things to be the very comfort of God himself. Going back to the very beginning of this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul begins with that great word of blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, the kind of Father who feels something of a visceral compassion for His children. The kind of God who intimately comforts and encourages his people. That's what our heavenly father is like. That's what our glorious God is like. Remember, Paul had been pummeled by the waves of circumstance, beaten with rods in Philippi, rejected and mobbed by the Thessalonian Jews, publicly mocked in the city of Athens. And we're told one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Acts chapter 18, verse 9, that God met Paul there in the midst of his discouragement and fear, right in the center of it, right in the heart of it. Acts chapter 18, verse nine, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision when Paul was experiencing ministerial PTSD, 
Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. That the God of Christianity is both a sovereign king and a loving father, worthy of our trust. He's not aloof. He cares about you. He wants to meet you in the midst of any discouragement or fear that you might be experiencing with visceral compassion and the comfort of his very presence. And he does that very thing oftentimes, as we see in this morning's passage, through his people, comforting us like the Apostle Paul through the Tituses that he's kindly given us. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, verse 13, we are comforted. Godly grief, according to the Apostle Paul, is characterized by repentance, a deeper desire to please the Lord. As Paul says back in chapter five, verse nine, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. The word aim meaning to be ambitious so that godly grief leads to a more zealous ambition to please the Lord as opposed to worldly grief, which Paul says is a pathway to death, a pathway to destruction. We see an example of worldly grief in Hebrews chapter 12, perhaps one of the better examples, the grief of Esau. The author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by, by it many become defiled. That language, root of bitterness, is idolatry language. He goes on to say, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau, the Bible tells us, was Isaac's firstborn son, given the honor and privilege of bearing the responsibility of the family, the responsibility of carrying on the family name, the birthright was his, the blessing was his. But the story tells us that he traded away that birthright and blessing for the temporal pleasure of a pot of stew in a moment of hunger. We can read about that back in Genesis chapters 25 through 27. And not only was that an insult to his family, but to God, whose blessing and promise Esau ultimately rejected. The blessing was ultimately a gift from God himself, Isaac, as a father, simply acted as God's agent in passing God's blessing on to the eldest son, the blessing promised by God himself in the covenant he made with Abraham. It was a, it was a rejection of God's covenant and ultimately God himself, an example of faithlessness. And we're told that Esau wept. A declaration, and this is incredibly sobering, that 
The opposite of godly grief, it's not always apathy or the absence of remorse. That people can grieve, grieve, people can weep in a worldly way. In the words of one commentator that I read this week, quote, feeling sorry for something we have done is in itself no sign of virtue. That worldly grief is a sorrow that circumstances have gone badly. It's ultimately self-focused. Godly grief is a sorrow that we've offended God, that we brought his great and glorious name into disrepute. It's David's words in his famous Psalm of repentance and confession, Psalm 51 verse four, where David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Esau's regret was not that he offended the God whose covenant blessings were his for the taking. Esau's regret was that he lost his birthright. The blessing is what he sought with tears, not the God who blesses. That's crystal clear if you go back and read the story in those chapters of the book of Genesis. That according to the Apostle Paul, true repentance involves more than tears. Though tears may certainly be a part of our dealing with the sorrow of sin, that feeling of sorrow, that feeling of grief, that true repentance involves turning from sin and turning to Jesus. It involves putting sin to death by God's grace, having come face to face with the sorrow of sin and the sweetness of the Savior. So that godly grief is an acknowledgement that we've offended God and it's also a turning to that very God that we've offended. Paul receives word that that there's a godly grief stirring in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth, awakening the hearts of God's people to deeper desire to please him. And it, it comforts Paul. It overjoys him, in fact. And not only Paul, but Titus too. Goes on to say at the end of verse 13, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Don't shoot the messenger. There's a reason that phrase exists. Titus had the difficult job, the dirty task of taking Paul's letter of rebuke to the the church in Corinth. Could have gone really poorly for Titus. And yet we're told he came away from Corinth refreshed and full of joy. The saints in Corinth had treated Titus like a messenger of God himself, receiving the rebuke of the Lord through the written words of the apostle Paul. So that Paul closes out this first section of the letter. We'll get into section two next week with with this declaration of confidence in the gospel's impact on this church. A confidence in the genuineness of their faith. That fear within on the part of the apostle Paul, wondering if his labor had been in vain, replaced with great confidence, comfort, and joy in the Lord as the people of Corinth turned to the living God. A couple of questions that I think are worth asking ourselves in light of a passage like this. One would be simply, how is God bringing me face to face with 
the sorrow of sin and the sweetness of the Savior in, in his kindness? How is he stirring up in my heart a godly grief leading to repentance? If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that you would see your sin for what it is, that, that God would lead you to that place of godly grief, that rather than try to fix your life through some sort of renewed commitment to morality, that you would see the futility of trying to fix your sin problem yourself, that you would turn to Jesus, the one who lived the sinless, obedient life that you could never live on your behalf, the one who died the sinner's death that you deserve to die on your behalf, the one who rose from the grave declaring victory over our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. As Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 2, salvation, it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's a gift of grace to be received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I invite you to, to turn to this Jesus, to know the joy of being restored to the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And if you are a Christian, coming back to last week, the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So that I would ask you, what is this strange pandemic experience unearthing in you? If the answer is nothing, I'd consider that great pause for concern. And if you do have an answer, perhaps multiple answers to that question, I would encourage you not to mistake that unearthing for anything other than the kindness of the Lord, the Father of mercies. Secondly, I would ask, how have you recently experienced the comfort of God through the instrumentality of his people? His kindness expressed through their kindness. His love expressed through their love. His encouragement expressed through their encouragement. And then on the flip side, where do you sense God calling you to bring his comfort to others? To be an instrument of kindness and encouragement and love yourself. A pandemic does not necessitate a pause button when it comes to comforting others in the Lord and receiving comfort in the Lord. If anything, it ramps up our deep need for each other and for the God of comfort himself. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship together. We'll do so in a couple different ways. One, through our song. I invite you to sing from wherever you happen to be as you engage in the streaming of this service or to perhaps even just allow these words to wash over you over the next few minutes during this time as we continue to hit the pause button on communion, on the Lord's Supper. I invite you as you would before you were to come and receive the bread and the cup to pause for a second, to just marvel, to wonder at who Jesus is and having overcome our sin problem and having dealt with the sin deep in our hearts that, that we deserve death for. I mean, coming back to David's words in uh, Psalm chapter 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, Lord. Apart from Jesus, that's a hopeless statement. But we're not hopeless because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Pause for a second and let that sit with you.